1: Greetings comrades and welcome to the Eastern Border. Before we begin, I have to say that this episode is being recorded on the Victims of Communism Memorial Day in Latvia. March 25th was when in 1949, in the operation Coastal Wave by uh, the KGB and their military supporters in the Baltics, a lot of people and families were deported to distant regions of Siberia in trains meant for cattle various work camps, gulags, and uninhabited places to build settlements. 28.6% of all the deported were children under the age of 16. According to the secret party decision about this operation, which was written in January 29th of the same year, 1949, there were four main groups that were targeted for deportation. Firstly, kulaks and their families. That is, any farmer that owned more than two cows in his homestead and or used hired labor on their farm in any form, seasonal or otherwise. Secondly, families of the resistance movement members, including families of those who had been shot or sent to Kulags previously. Yes, the so-called Fodis brothers, who hoped to restore independence to Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia... Yeah, they continued to operate and hope for a Western intervention even up to this point. Thirdly, so-called legalized resistance movement members who had ceased their activities and reintegrated into Soviet society and their families too. And finally, the supporters of the resistance movement and their whole families. This often included extended families of whomever had any ties with the resistance, and you could be declared as having such ties for literally any reason, such as owning the flag of your previously independent country, or any symbols of it, or, say, money with the symbols on it, or um, prohibited literature, which also varied date by date. Usually, the KGB, with their internal forces and support from the Soviet military, Just went to a household, and then arrested everyone who was there at the time. Gave them 15 minutes to gather whatever stuff they could carry with them on their person. Obviously confiscating any valuables, and not mentioning anything about their future fate. Oh, and they looted the house afterwards, because obviously. Packed them into the train cars, originally meant for cattle, and sent them off. Off to Gulag you go. And on the train, obviously, there was no warmth, no food, nothing. Many died on those trends even before getting to their intended targets. So this is the tragedy that we remember on the 25th of March. I've spoken about this in some of my previous episodes a year or so ago in detail, and um, I just thought that a reminder in this day would be necessary, as it's an important day for our people here in the Baltics. Our main subject for today is the BT tank series, however. And that subject is closely related to a certain important Soviet marshal that, well, fans of my show might have heard about. Tukhachevsky. Let's start with him, and when we get to the tanks themselves, you'll understand why this is so important. After all, Tukhachevsky, nicknamed Red Napoleon by foreign press members, and Napoleonchik or Little Napoleon, by Stalin, and you can figure out which was more important... He was literally an insane, Trotsky-loving, Slavic-pagan, noble-blooded, cavalry officer, and only kind of a Bolshevik, and I think he pretended to be one just to survive, who was also the mind behind why the Soviet Union needed those BT tanks and other military modernization in the first place. And I'm not kidding about the insanity in Trotsky-loving. Because, wow. Buckle up. As this... It's gonna be a fun one. Mikhail Tukhachevsky was born into a family of impoverished nobles in the, what is present-day Smolensk oblast of Russia. Now, legend states that his family descended from a Flemish count who ended up stranded in the East during the Crusades and took a Turkish wife before settling in Russia, but that is mostly false because, well, it was spread by Stalin's people who later shot him, so... Well, that's obviously not completely true, but he got romanticized often as well, so what do you know? All we know for sure is that his great-grandfather, Alexander Tukhachevsky, served as a colonel in the Imperial Russian Army. And after attending the Moscow Military School in 1912, he moved on to the Alexandrovskoye Military School, which he graduated in 1914. Now, after that, at the outset of the First World War, he joined the Semyonovsky Guards Regiment as a second lieutenant in July 1914, declaring that, quote, I am convinced that all that is needed in order to achieve what I want is bravery and self confidence. I certainly have enough self confidence. I told myself that I shall either be a general at 30 or that I shall not be alive by then. Well, he did manage to live to more than 30. And I'm not sure if uh, that was a good idea by the time. He was taken prisoner by the Imperial Army, Imperial German Army, in February 1915. Tukhachevsky escaped four times from POW camps. And, well, finally they caught him. Again and again and again. And he was basically held as a totally unrepentant SKP in Bavaria. In Ingolstadt Fortress. There, he met Lemond, French journalist, Remy Ruhr, and shared a cell with Captain Charles de Gaulle, by the way. So, that's an interesting thing. And apparently, according to them, Lukachevsky at the time, and I've said he was totally insane, right? Well, quotes from Ruhr here. Lukachevsky played his violin, spouted nihilist beliefs, and spoke against Jews, whom he called dogs, who, quote, spread their fleas through the world. End quote. Brewer also reported that Tukhachevsky highly praised Napoleon, and also in a certain conversation, Tukhachevsky said he hated Jews for bringing Christianity and the morality of capital to Russia. Brewer then asked him if he was a socialist, and he replied, quote, «Socialist? Certainly not. What a need for classification you have. Besides, the great socialists are all Jews, and the socialist doctrine is a branch of universal Christianity». I laugh at money, and whether the land is divided up or not is all one to me. The barbarians, my ancestors, lived in common, but they had chiefs. No, I detest socialists, Jews, and Christians. So that's a lot of people to hate in in Russia, you know. According to Ruhr, Tokachevsky said that he would only follow Lenin if he de-Europeanized and threw Russia into barbarism, but feared Lenin would not do that. I wonder why, though. After ranting about how he could use Marxism as a justification to secure the territorial aims of the Tsars and cement Russia's position as a world power, he laughed and said he was only joking. Ruhr said the laugh had an ironic and despairing tone. In another, different occasion following the February Revolution, Ruhr observed Tukachevsky carving a, quote, scary idol from colored cardboard with burning eyes, a gaping mouth and a bizarre and terrible nose. He asked Tukachevsky about this and... ...why he was making this, to which Tukhachevsky responded, quote... "...this is Perun, a powerful person, this is the god of war and death." And Mikhail knelt down before him with comic seriousness. Ruhr burst out laughing, but uh, Tukhachevsky responded, don't laugh, getting up from his knees. And uh, he responds to Ruhr here, I told you that Slavs need a new religion. They are given Marxism, but there is too much modernism and civilization in this theology. There is Dazhbog, the god of the sun, Stribog, the god of the wind, Veles, the god of arts and poetry, and finally Perun, the god of thunder and lightning. After some deliberation, I settled on Perun, since Marxism, having won in Russia, will unleash merciless wars between people. I will honor Perun every day. And, yeah, Tukhachevsky's apparent neo-paganism was also corroborated by another prisoner at Ingolstadt, Nikolai Alexandrovich Surikov, who recalled that he once saw a scarecrow in the corner of Tukhachevsky's cell, and upon asking him as to what it was, Tukhachevsky responded, Tsurikov interpreted as heavy sarcasm, "There was an effigy of Yarilo, which he had created during Shroutide. Tukhachevsky never denied later even confirmed personally these stories about his imprisonment in Germany, but he always said he was politically immature in 1917 and greatly regretted his early views. In France in 1936, uh, shortly before his arrest and uh, subsequent murder in the show trial by Stalin, when confronted with what Rohr wrote about him, he said that he had read his book and said the following. I was still very young at the time, a novice at politics, and all I knew about revolutions was the last phase of the citizens' revolution in France. The Bonapartism whose military triumphs filled me with boundless admiration – I never think of my views at Ingolstadt without regretting them, since they could cause doubts about my devotion to the Soviet motherland. I'm taking advantage of our reunion to tell you my true feelings. Now, whether or not, like, he really gave up his old views at any point, um, yeah, he... kind of, the assertion, the the idea that he was a full-blown Bolshevik, yeah, it's kind of, um, kind of not the case here, I think. And, uh, well, knowing how he was under suspicion by Stalin, and then, well killed in the show trial in 1937 purges, and everything, um, yeah, his heavy sarcasm and everything, there might be something to it, you know, because this is an insane thing to say, and, um, he kind of did crazy things anyway later on, and, and, and what was going on in the guy's head, I don't know, he might have even stayed neo pagan up until the end, because, well... After all of this, Tukhachevsky's fifth escape was successful, and after crossing the Swiss-German border, carrying with him some pagan idols, mind you, he returned to Russia in September 1917. Following the October Revolution of of that year, Tukhachevsky joined the Bolsheviks and went on to play a key role in the Red Army, despite his noble ancestry and, well, apparent, total and serious neo-paganism. The man was bonkers. And I'm not even kidding here, because he might have joked in the prison, but what he did afterwards kind of cements all this insanity, because remember that there's, like, hardcore atheist Trotsky and, and hardcore atheist Stalin there, and there's Lenin, who's also a hardcore atheist up to the point of persecuting Christians and everything. So Tukhachevsky became an officer as upon his return and after the revolution in the Red Army. And he rapidly advanced in ranks because of, well, his talents, because he was a talented officer at the point, a cavalry one. During the Russian Civil War, he was given the responsibility for defending Moscow, and the Bolshevik Defense Commissar, at that point, Leon Trotsky, of whom Tukhachevsky was a huge fan of, and always remember the Permanent Revolution, everything, that, right? He gave Tukhachevsky command of the 5th Army in 1919 and he led the campaign to capture Siberia from the anti-communist white forces of Alexander Kolchak. Tukhachevsky used concentrated attacks to exploit the enemy's open flanks and threaten them with envelopment. And um, this is where the man's madness springs up again. Because according to Tukhachevsky's close confidant Leonid Sabaneev, in 1918, when Tukhachevsky was in the service of the military department of the All-Russian Central Executive Committee, in his um, last very kind of open open display of neo-paganism, which is still madness, and this is madness to the nth degree, Tukhachevsky drew up a project for destruction of Christianity and restoration of Slavic paganism. To that end, Tukhachevsky submitted a memo on declaring paganism as the state religion of uh, the Soviet Russia. Which although mocked, also received some discussion in the Council of People's Commissars, which commended Tukhachevsky for his quote-unquote joke and his commitment to atheism. Sabanyev observed that Tukhachevsky seemed as happy as a schoolboy who had just succeeded in a prank, End quote. Whether or not he was happy because he wasn't taken seriously or he couldn't understand what was going on or that he just wasn't arrested and shot on the spot... Uh, which is the likely case, I think you gotta admit that you you don't joke like that, and the Soviet Union during the Civil War or even after that. this was kind of crazy and insane, even for the time and the era and for the Soviet Union just just imagine how how crazy it had to be to just to go up to the Communist Russia who's fully Marxist and being a Bolshevik yourself and in the Red Army and just um publishing a paper and a memo stating that, hey, how about the trinity of Marx, Lenin, and Perun? How about we stick Perun in there as well? That's a weird thing, you know. He went on during the civil war to help defeat General Anton Denikin in the Crimea, and he launched an offensive into Kuban. He used cavalry to disrupt enemy's rear, because he was a cavalry officer. He, during the final stage of the civil war, commanded the 7th Army, he also served during the suppression of the Kronstadt rebellion in March nineteen twenty one. He also commanded the assault against the Tambov Republic between nineteen twenty one and nineteen twenty two. And uh, yeah. Tukichevsky was as ruthless as any Bolshevik really. And during that time, Civil War, he was known for using summary execution of hostages and poison gas in his suppression of peasant uprisings. Oh, glorious, glorious poison gas. Like I said, he is a violent and crazy, crazy person who probably was a neo-pagan up until the very end. Tukhachevsky also commanded the Soviet invasion of Poland, which was initiated by Trotsky, kind of the high commander, and Tukhachevsky being um, a total fanatic of Trotsky and his permanent revolution idea, Tukhachevsky, you know, ran the thing and decided that he could just run towards the Polish tanks with his cavalry, and, uh, well... That really didn't didn't end well to him. However, at the beginning, Tukhachevsky concentrated his troops near Vitebsk, which he uh, theatrically dubbed the Gates of Smolensk. His troops' orders to cross the border, Tukhachevsky stated, quote, and this is an amazing quote, which just once again proves the madness of the man. The fate of the World Revolution is being decided in the West. The way it leads over the corpse of Poland to a universal conflagration. On to Vilniu, Minsk and Warsaw. Forward. Well, he was determined. Rash, murderous and utterly crazy. But he also was, well, smart. Because you see, after massive defeat in 1920, uh, in the war against Poland... Tukhachevsky started thinking about how to praise Perun more. By that, I mean how to reform the Red Army and how to increase its performance. He started his criticisms later on in the mid 1920s. Specifically, he openly criticized the Red Army's performance during the 1926 summer maneuvers. He criticized the officers' inability to determine what course of action to take and communicate that with their troops, especially harshly. Kukachevsky noted that initiative among the officers was lacking, that they responded slowly to changes in the situation and that communication was poor. This is not purely the officers' fault, as the only way of communication from local unit HQ to the field positions was a single telephone line. In contrast, German divisions, mobilized shortly after the interwar period, had telephones, radio, horse, cycle and motorcycle messengers, signal lights and flags, and pieces of cloth with which messages were to be conveyed mostly to aircraft. Tukhachevsky then reached the position of first deputy commissar for defense to commissar for defense Voroshilov. Voroshilov disliked Tukhachevsky, and would later be one of the initiators of the Great Purge, which wouldn't benefit Tukhachevsky's safety at all. According to Zhukov, it was Tukhachevsky and not Voroshilov who ran the ministry in practice, because Voroshilov was, well, way less intelligent, to say the least. Less insane as well, but less of a madman genius, really. And. Uh, yeah, at that point, Stalin, who regarded Tukhachevsky as bitterest rival, and, well, call him Napoleonczyk, he decided to start to deal with all these officers that Stalin really hated. Upon Stalin's ascension to party leadership in 1929, Tukhachevsky began receiving denunciations from senior officers who disapproved of Tukachevsky's tactical theories, one of which was, well, Theory of Deep Operation, which is, well he's often credited with the history and the theory of deep operation in which combined arms formations strike deep behind enemy lines to destroy enemy's rear and logistics. Of course this is kind of all a bit unclear and everything uh, but his books and his instructions of deep battle which is the name of one of his books it really helped out to uh, strike through the Soviet military command and uh, the whole logistics operations, and the, that's one of the reasons why he really wanted these so-called cavalry tanks or cruiser tanks, which are the BT tanks, by the way. They're classified as cavalry or cruiser tanks, which are meant to basically exploit any holes in the enemy's front line created by the so-called infantry tanks. That is the, the British system of classifying these, these vehicles. Yeah, this was kind of his idea, and the Soviets later exploited that great effect in World War II. But that was all Tukhachevsky's thing. And, you know, in 1931, after Stalin had accepted the need for industrialized military, Tukhachevsky was again given a leading role in reforming the army. He held really advanced ideas on military strategy, particularly in the use of tanks and aircraft in combined operations. And that's a thing. Because although Tukhachevsky would then, later on, would be killed in a made-up case of Trotskyist plot to overthrow the people's leader, Stalin, he still was the guy who basically decided that, hey, the Polish beat us with their tanks, we need more modern tanks and modern methods of operations. And now we can finally move on to, well, the BT tanks, which literally were what Tukhachevsky loved and intended to be used widely.
0: Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of the Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by Russianvoiceovers.eu. Enjoy. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
1: You see, in the late 1920s, as the Swiss Army started to modernize their fleet of aging tanks, by the advices of our madman Tukhachevsky, they decided to held a relatively open competition for its design bureaus to find the right mix of armament, speed, and armor, utilizing the best facets of existing tanks from all over the world. And one of the designs of note became the M1931 light tank designed by American J. Walter Christie, a race car mechanic, inventor, and mechanical engineer by trade. The M1931 utilized his globally recognized Christie suspension system, which used torsion bars that proved for a high degree of flexibility at above average speeds. As such, it played well in this creation of light, or fast, tank system, because... BT stands for Bistrachodny Tank, or literally, Fast Tank. While development of his Christie suspension system was often overlooked in the United States, it found a lot of fame elsewhere in the world, as the British, French, and Russians all took serious note. Christie attempted to sell the United States Army of his Christie tank without any real success. However, between 1930 and 1931, the Soviet Union using the KGB, at that time NKVD agents, at a Soviet trade organization, Amtorg, which is Amerikanska or American trade organization, yeah, they uh, used their New York political contacts to get two prototype examples without turrets of the Christie for evaluation. These were obviously sent under falsified papers claiming that these tanks were farming tractors and not combat tanks. Utilizing an existing design for the Soviets held some merit, for they proved a more cost-effective engineering endeavour in the long run. After trials, the Russians liked what they saw in the Christie and re-engineered the type for their own tanks as the BT. A license to mass-produce the Christie design was subsequently obtained by the Soviet government. The original production versions, the BT-1 and the BT-2, were essentially direct copies of the Christie design, and of these two, only the BT-2, was the version that first featured Soviet-inspired modifications. The series ultimately evolved to include subtle variations to help simplify production, and were powered by an engine originally utilized in an aircraft. The BT-2 prototype was finished in October of 1931, and production began the following year. Primary armament centered around a 37mm main gun, but ordnance shortages ensured that some were machine-gun-only tanks with dual machine guns. The subsequent BT-5 model was then upgunned to a 45mm main gun armament. At any rate, this maining produced a fast and agile tank, giving birth to the definitive BT-7 model of 1935 with its new turret, new transmission, stronger armor and more powerful engine. Operational service for the BT-7 began in 1937 under the formal designation of BT-7-1. These were identified by their cylindrical turret designs that were only later upgraded to a more conical shape. And taken as a whole, the BT-7 design exhibited excellent cross-country mobility, thanks to the Christie suspension system, and displayed equally excellent speeds on roads. The suspension was linked to eight large road wheels, four positioned to a track side, and each were independently mounted. To exploit the BT-7's adaptability for off-road actions, tracks of differing width could be adapted, offering varying degrees of traction against the adding terrain types as needed. The design of the BT-7 was such that the tracks could be completely removed within 30 minutes by the crew to allow for on-road driving of the tank on its own wheels, the drive now being relocated to the rear sprockets and rear wheels, while the front road wheels were used for steering. This feature, however, proved a novelty and was hardly ever used in practice, and ultimately dropped from later BT production models. The idea behind this drive mode was to supply the tank with excellent wheeled road speeds in getting from point A to point B, but this was really only effective on road driving. And, you know, Russia has two issues, roads and uh, stupid people. As the saying goes, because Russia has no roads, really. In in general. Because it made little sense and wasn't practical. Unless you counted the conspiracy theories and everything, and including some ideas by Viktor Suvorov and mad ideas by Tukhachevsky, who, like I said, was a fan of Trotsky of Permanent Revolution, and note that this is a fast tank, which is a cruiser or cavalry tank, and thus would uh, be mostly used in kind of aggressive actions spreading the World Revolution around. Because, let's be honest here, as a fan of Trotsky, that was Tukhachevsky's main idea, to basically spread the World Revolution, and these fast tanks... Yeah, they're really kind of useless for defense, as, well, later proven by military actions. But they would be really, really good on the western roads and western countries if you would attack them. Now, wouldn't it? That would be just an amazing thing. You could take off the treads and then you could go really fast on the roads. So that's one of the reasons why people claim that, well, these were obviously meant for assaulting and attacking instead of, well, any defensive action. Despite the light armoring though, throughout, the BT-7 was well-armed for the time, fielding the previously mentioned 45 mm main gun, in a round and traversing turret, putting the tank on par with many of contemporaries elsewhere. The main armament was further backed by now usual, in all Soviet tanks, 7.62mm general-purpose anti-personnel machine gun, in the turret as a coaxially mounted weapon. Some BT-7 models also fitted an additional 7.62mm machine gun. This in a rear-facing, trainable ball mount along the back-facing of the turret to protect the tank's rear against direct infantry attacks. Within time, it was found that this fitting was somewhat useless when pairing the tank with infantry squads, because, again, this was a cavalry tank. Because, well, infantry squads could protect BT-7, but if it was going slowly, but, you know... It's kind of pointless to choose something literally called fast tank together with the infantry, because infantry could move as fast. Early production forms of the BT-7 sported riveted turret designs, which brought about another level of danger to the crew. If suffering a direct hit from an enemy shell, the rivets to holding the turret armor of the BT-7 in place presented bullet-like projectiles within the turret itself, able to cause severe damage to the crew, ammunition, and critical systems alike. As such, production inevitably moved to a welded turret system. Once in practice, the BT seven proved a reliable and sound mechanical implement of war. It was, it was respected by the crews for the performance and, well, ease of maintenance. If properly maintained and trained to maintain, which was um kind of a big issue for a long while. Externally, the BT seven retained much of the original Christie appearance. It sported a highly identifiable sloping glass-sized plate straddled on either side by the track mud guards. The sides of the hull superstructure were equally well sloped and helped to an extent in delivering awkward angles against incoming enemy projectiles. The hull was of an all-welded construction. The driver sat at the forward center of the hull, with an entry-exit hatch showcasing a simple forward vision slit. Directly to the driver's rear was the traversing turret holding the main gun. The BT-7 was operated by a crew of three, including the driver in the hull and two personnel situated in the turret to man the armament. The BT-7 weighed in at just 13.5 tons and was powered by a single M17V12 diesel engine of 450 horsepower. This allowed for speeds in excess of 32 miles per hour with a range out to 217 miles. Armor was 6 to 22 millimeter thick across all facings, providing for modest protection at the expense of speed. The BT had a length of about 3 meters, and a height of about 2 meters or something around that. The data that I have, which comes from American, sources, American military sources, are 18 feet 7 inches of length, with a height of 7 feet 11 inches. As the previous BT-5s proved viable in the Spanish Civil War... It was only logical to expect success with the BT-7 when they were used en masse in the Soviet invasion of Poland. The tank became the primary armored vehicle to spearhead the Red Army in the operation. Poland was, well, then conquered by the combined force of Germans in the west and Soviets in the east. And, well, the BT tanks proved really, really well this time when attacking Poland. Which was kind of suspected because that was... They were literally overseen by the man who had it. ...invaded Poland in 1920, and he, I guess, really wanted some revenge for Perun's sake. However, the future of the BT-7 was kind of put in doubt in subsequent actions in the Winter War with Finland and the German invasion of the Soviet Union. Anti-tank weapons fueled by the Finns led to a lot of losses among the BT-7 ranks... By the time of the German invasion under Operation Barbarossa in 1941, the BD-7 was in full operational service, available in quite a lot of numbers, but essentially already having peaked in terms of effectiveness. Despite this being a modernized version by the Soviet tank forces some years before, the type was quickly shown to have major deficiencies, particularly in armor protection when combating the new breed of German tanks. And, as could be expected, losses for the undergone and lightly armoured system quickly matted up. Couple these inherent limitations with poorly trained commanders and crew and ill-maintained vehicles, and, uh, yeah, that was a battlefield disaster. After all, the BD-7 was, at its core, a light tank design, and never truly meant to dangle with medium or heavy tanks by any regard. It was intended by a crazy, neo-paganistic, Bolshevik guy to assault Poland, Instead of fighting German tanks from defensive positions, after all, if you can, you know, understand this, this is... By the end of 1941, large collections of BD-7 were either knocked out of action by the enemies or placed out of service through logistics. And examples captured by the German army were used only for security duty, to cover the rear from the Soviet flanking manures, and never as frontline tools. At any rate, the the Soviets had to use whatever was in their stocks and kind of at the time, to stave off extinction in the hands of Germans, so they really had to use these BD-7 tanks. And, well, these later evolved to the war-winning medium T-34 tank, which we spoke about in our first episode of the tank series. At the end of the war, with the BD-7's role completed in the West, Soviet authorities rerouted the tank for use in the August 1945 Soviet invasion of Manchuria, in operations against the Japanese army along the Soviet border. And this was just three months removed from the end of the European war, after an agreement was reached with the Allied forces at the Tehran Conference in November of 1943. In these actions, however, the bt 7 proved far superior to all the armoured infantry vehicles the Japanese could field against it. This would be the last recorded combat action for all BT tanks. But the legacy was already secured in history. And I think a part of it, really, is our good guy Tukhachevsky. the madness of that one guy... There would never be a BT tank series, and there would never, because of this, be the T-34. So, well, all it takes to create a light tank is one completely insane madman cavalry officer, who's also a bitter enemy of Stalin, but then Stalin adopts his ideas, and then shoots him. History is weird like that sometimes. But that is why we really like to tell you about it. So, I hope you enjoyed this episode, it was a bit weird, and a fun one. At least for me, making it because I got to talk about Tukhachevsky, my one of my favorite, completely crazy the Russian Soviet army officers. He was both, after all, that Stalin purged. Hope you enjoyed it. Next time we'll be talking more about politics, and we're gonna look at how Novi is sick again, and uh, a crazy scheme of uh, stolen bicycles being sold out of the Russian consulate in Strasbourg, and all sorts of weird things. And it's gonna be at least. As weird as this episode. Up until then, don't forget to visit us at easternborder.lv. Click the little donate button there if you want to support the show, or go to rusensov.com, and you know you can buy all sorts of Soviet accessories there. And there are friends and help out the show and use Eastern Border checkout to get ten percent discount. And if you want to support the show more, please become our patron at patreon.com/theeasternborder, or just tell your friends about us and follow us on Facebook or Twitter or wherever, and keep in contact, because we often post stuff there. Up until political episode, das свидания, And remember, happiness is mandatory.
0: Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhos in the Great Motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void.